You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, back for the second time by popular demand, co-hostess, Emma Wilson. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thanks for agreeing to do this, Emma. I'm so excited that you can be on the podcast today because there is literally so much driving law that has happened in the last, like, 48 hours that we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, and I'm excited about um, the cases that we have here and the weird things happening with COVID as well. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess we'll we'll just dive right in um, because we have so much to cover. Uh, and we'll start with the, I, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Cluet? Cluet decision? That's my guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a Cluet how to say it. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um. So I sent you this case earlier in the week and you had a read and you had lots of thoughts, but I thought we'd maybe start by um, just going through a bit of the, the background facts of the case, because it's not really on its face, a case about driving. Um, what happened was Mr. Cluett was charged with um, uh, possession of, of drugs for the purposes of trafficking, and you defend a lot of those cases, which is why I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk about with this. Um, and he was pulled over at the same time as this drug investigation took place for the purposes of an investigation into prohibited driving. And as the investigation carried out, it morphed into the drug investigation. And he was not charged with the prohibited driving. The police had some correspondence, so we don't know the details of which, uh, about um, the prohibited driving issue with Crown Council, and mm-hmm. they declined to approve a charge. If I got that right? Um, yeah, because there was the conversation between the police and Provincial Crown, mm-hmm. where the the police had sent things to the provincial crown and then provincial crown sent them some messages asking for clarification about the search. Yes. And then that those messages are something that the defense wanted to end up being able to see. Yes. So it essentially became a, an application for disclosure um, of the information that was in the possession of the crown and tell us what happened, Emma. So the, the defense lawyer applied for the disclosure of email messages, notes, or other communications sent by Crown Counsel to one of the officers involved in the arrest. Um, because it's, what it seems like happened is that that officer had provided some kind of an explanation around the search in their initial report to Crown Counsel. Um, the Crown seemingly thought that there was inadequate information or maybe something seemed off about the search. So they asked for more information. And then that same officer writes another report to Crown Counsel going into quite a bit more detail, um, which for defense counsel kind of sets off their spidey sense seeing that because 
then it's a question of, well, was this second report to Crown Council only done to kind of tell the Crown what maybe they want to hear or to make the case seem stronger or the search seem more legitimate? Um, So then, of course, Defense Council wants to see what the questions were that were actually asked. Um, Although, you know, at the end of the day, the judge decided that because they fall under the ambit of prosecutorial discretion um, related to charge approval, that it's not something that defense counsel gets to see. And that to me, like that part of the judgment really bothered me. That was the part that got to me. Like, you know, you have these prosecutors, they're having correspondence with the police. It's about an issue that relates directly to the charge that's before the court arising out of the same incident, but that was done under the guise of this discussion about something unrelated, like like a driving while prohibited charge. And so they just get to hide under this blanket of prosecutorial discretion and not disclose it, even though it's clearly connected and, and in my view, clearly relevant. Right. And I mean, the it seems like the defense counsel was pretty clear that they weren't trying to say that the Crown actually did anything wrong, because it makes sense for the Crown to want to question things before approving a charge. Um, They just want to know what was it that prompted this officer to create a second report, which I think is legitimate. Um, I mean, I suppose that there's a concern that if these kinds of communications get disclosed too often, then it might lead to more questioning of of Crown decisions on on whether to approve charges or not. From the judge's explanation of why it couldn't be disclosed, it sounded like what the Crown had actually said was probably relatively innocuous. So I don't, from my point of view, you know, if there's nothing really wrong here, then why, what's the issue with disclosing it? It's not like it's something that's going to create some huge controversy anyway, but. Yeah. And if it's, you know, if it's evidence that was submitted to support a prohibited driving charge, like. I mean, it's not like the integrity of the justice system might be called into question. Like, we're not talking about, you know, that case that was a couple weeks ago with the with the murder, that road rage murder where the, the, you know, the crown was giving advice to the police and the police were like, yeah, fuck that. I'm not following that advice. And the murder charge got stayed because the police deliberately violated the charter. Like here we have like it was a minor charge that ultimately led to bigger charges, but it was a minor charge that was at issue. it's advice. uh, It it wasn't advice. It was inquiries into information that might've given the officer a motive to later fabricate evidence Mm -hmm. in the report is not credibility and reliability of the main police witness on a charter application more important than the prosecutorial discretion decision-making on a DWP? I mean, I would assume so. The only thing is we don't know what the Crown actually said. So it's, it, it's, it's, we're kind of blind here. We don't know what, what it was that couldn't be disclosed. So it makes it harder to, to even, that's, that's the frustrating thing to me, really. You don't even, you don't even know what it was that couldn't be disclosed and whether there, it was, you know, really shouldn't have been or whether maybe it would have been fine. I just like I read this decision as potentially opening the door to more circumstances where the crown chooses to withhold information 
um, that flows as a result of these discussions under the guise of, of prosecutorial discretion. Like I had a case, oh God, this is going back several years, but I had an impaired driving case where the officer in the middle of his direct examination started saying all this information that I had just heard about for the first time. And I, on a break, I asked the prosecutor about it. And she's like, oh yeah, I just learned it in my advanced interview. And I said, well, wait a minute. Why didn't you disclose that to me? You're supposed to tell me what happens in the advanced interviews and give me that information so that I'm prepared for trial. And she said, no, that's prosecutorial discretion because I'm reviewing the charge approval status of the file. Well, like at, at all moments of a prosecution, from start to finish, Crown Counsel is always supposed to be considering whether or not the charge approval standard continues to be met. And so does that mean that they can now throw up roadblocks to disclosure of things in pretrial interviews like this prosecutor mistakenly thought? And she later apologized to me and said, you know what, I did research it. And actually, you're right. I do have to tell you those things. Sorry, my bad. Um, but didn't make a deal on the basis of that. Um, like, I don't understand. Like, at, at this case to me seems to be opening the door for that type of mischief. Right. I mean, and the Crown oftentimes in other kinds of files will call the complainant when they're in the charge approval process to get more information from them as well, or talk to other witnesses if it's a sensitive file where it's questionable whether to approve charges or not. Um, and, you know, it would be pretty unfortunate if, you know, the decision is that we, anything that is discussed in char the charge approval process doesn't need to be disclosed to defense when that's actually a crucial decision-making process. Yeah. And, you know, you're getting some very important information at that point in time. If you're doing further inquiries, it's usually because there's something serious that's either missing or that you need a lot more information on. Yeah, exactly. So, and I can't imagine a situation where you need to know that. <laughs> anyway, this is something we should all as criminal lawyers and people who are interested in driving law and the law in general, keep an eye on the development of the law on this issue, because I anticipate that we might see a lot more on this now that this decision has been uh, released. So moving on mm -hmm. to the next topic, um, because this was big news yesterday and today. Um, yesterday, ICBC, or well, I guess the, the Ministry of Public Safety uh, announced that ICBC is now going to refuse to issue driver's licenses and refuse to provide car insurance mm -hmm. to people who have not paid their COVID fines. Yeah. And I mean, unless they dispute them, right? Um, but I was surprised that that was surprising, to be honest, because they do that with just about anything where you have a fine that you owe to the provincial government or even like family, yep. family maintenance payments, like child support payments. Um, I think that you know, the concern was, oh, we have all these fines and a lot of the people that get these fines are people who may not be inclined to pay them, let's say, because they maybe don't think these rules are legitimate. Um, but uh, 
you know, I feel like this was, this was coming because they do this with every kind of ticket that you have that you don't pay off. I'm reasonably certain from what I was hearing um, that they were doing it anyway with the COVID fines. And I think somebody must have figured out that there was that gap there, um, which is why they brought in this legislation. Because I Mm -hmm. for sure have had, had people since the COVID fining started contact me and say, I can't get my license because I didn't pay my COVID fine. What do I do? (laughs) So, you know, I'm Um, I'm not, I'm surprised that they needed the legislation and they didn't think it through in the first place. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I, I kind of wish as well though, that they communicated that sooner to people, because I feel like if you're, if you're just thinking it's a fine and I'll just find a way to not pay it or I'll just avoid it or whatever, let it go to collections or something, then, you know, that's the kind of situation where a lot of people would just let it happen. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you get a parking ticket somewhere that you know that they don't bother enforcing, then why would you pay it? Um, there's but a, there's if they'd communicated this, sorry. There's a lawyer who used to work at our office. I won't say who, um, but hasn't worked at our office for over three years and uh, they didn't pay a parking ticket and we still get their collection calls. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I had a parking ticket go to collections once and that was embarrassing. But, um, you know, if you're you're somebody who thinks that the the rules don't apply to you with respect to like a public health emergency, maybe you're not going to be that embarrassed by getting calls from collections to pay it. I mean, that sounds judgmental, but um, so they had to find a way to do it. But maybe if they'd communicated sooner, like, hey, by the way, if you get this ticket and you don't pay it, then you're not gonna be able to renew your license. Probably some people would have thought twice before doing whatever they were doing to actually get the ticket in the first place. Well, probably. Um, I also, you know, I think, that there's a real problem just generally with I mean and, and this doesn't just extend to the COVID tickets but really withholding a license and insurance from anybody for an unpaid ticket that has nothing to do with driving and that's that it yeah. unjustly punishes people who don't have the same means I mean like it's really easy it has been really easy in the pandemic for people who are wealthy to be able to mm-hmm. see their friends because you can go to a restaurant and the restaurants weren't policing whether or not you were with your household. But if you can't afford to go to a restaurant, then your options are go to the beach or the park. And if the weather's shit, go to somebody else's house and potentially get fined for having an unlawful gathering. And you're only doing that, you know, because you may not be able to afford to do anything else. Not that that justifies violating the health orders, but like if you're going to violate yeah. the health orders and you're poor, you're more likely to have long-term consequences than if you're wealthy. And like six months down the road, when you go to renew your license and they're like, oh, you owe us $575 for traveling during the travel ban. You're like, okay, here's my credit card. I'm going to pay that. Right. Exactly. And I mean, like that comes out in other aspects of using ICBC this way too. Like you, if you get a transit ticket for not paying your bus fare, and then you want to renew your driver's license, like you can't do it because you didn't pay two seventy five for your bus fare, right? Um, I'm not sure what what like a better way around that would be um, to actually collect fines, or I mean, 
they could, and I think this is something we discussed like a long time ago when I was on talking about the cell phone tickets and stuff, they could, they could adjust fines to income Mm -hmm. or they could deal with it some other way because you're right. Like if someone has a lot of money and they want to go see their friends in Kelowna and the only consequence is they'll get a $575 fine, but they're already planning to spend like two or $3,000 on accommodations and food. Like that's just who cares. Right. Um, whereas like if, if somebody, you know, is visiting, I don't, I can't, I I don't want to think of excuses for breaking the rules and whatever, but I mean, if somebody has like a legitimate reason why they feel that, you know, they've done their risk calculation and they need to see somebody or whatever situation that they're in, um, but they don't have that much means, then getting a $575 ticket can mean they're not paying their rent. And maybe they need their license to do their job to then pay their rent too, which is like, that's the issue with things like the child support payments coming through. Um, Sorry, with the child support payments, meaning that you can't get your license either. It's like, well, what if this person who hasn't paid child support hasn't paid because they haven't had a job and now they need to renew their license because they got a job that they have to drive to but they can't do it because they haven't paid their child support payments. It's just like doubling down on punishing uh, low-income people. Totally. Um, and then did you hear, I, I didn't talk to you about this before we, we did our recording, but did you hear about the driver on the Malahat who got a ticket for violating the health orders? Mm-hmm. Like they were, they were t- originally pulled over for something else, like I think a speeding ticket, but yep. then the officer also asked them like why they were there. And then relied on their answer to issue them the mm-hmm. ticket. Like, I'm so angry about that. I'm angry, you know, of course, because somebody was traveling when they shouldn't have been. But I'm more angry about the, like, complete lack of, of truthfulness from the government about these, these travel restrictions and how they were going to be enforced. Like, I know when they came out, I, I did a lot of interviews. Um, you and I talked about how, you know, arguably it's unconstitutional to just randomly stop people and ask where are you going and why are you going there why aren't you in your health region why are you here and not at home and and now and the government said okay you know we're gonna we're gonna strike a balance we're not going to be conducting random traffic stops we're only going to be enforcing these in roadblocks and you're going to know where they're going to be and they're going to be at the travel related areas that are in the boundaries between health authorities and now you see a dude on the malahat who happened to be from north vancouver getting a ticket for speeding and then also being quizzed about the purpose for his travel and issued a ticket that's not what the government said they were going to do right and i don't i don't know if that's just one officer who's just being overzealous about this or if there's actually some kind of direction coming down to officers like oh when you pull someone over if they have an out of town address you need to ask them why they're here but i mean it seems like something where that person could very well dispute that ticket and then you know it might then he has a constitutional issue right this is a compelled statement yep for sure has a defense to it yeah. but like it also this also this decision like if the government does not come out and the rcmp does not come out right now as far as i'm concerned and say what the officer did in this case was not in keeping with the health order 
uh, and the enforcement measures that were announced. And we are canceling the ticket. We apologize for the error. Again, we want to remind people don't travel. If they don't right. do that, to me, they're opening the door for exactly what we were all panicked about, which was that there's going to be these random traffic stops. Because they're saying you can exercise your authority under the Motor Vehicle Act to stop somebody for speeding or for running a red light or for not stopping at a stop sign or not signaling a turn or whatever reason, then what's to stop them from exercising their authority that they can lawfully exercise under Section 73 of the Motor Vehicle Act to require a person to stop and state their name and address? Right. And then it, it's, it gets um, kind of similar to, I mean, your, your main area of practice, um, like the impaired driving stuff where they can pull somebody over and then they don't need to have necessarily a reason to get someone to provide a breath sample either, right? Yeah. Um, and like, and you and I both know. Arbitrary. <laughs> so arbitrary. And you and I both know that like, even though you don't have to say anything, most people <laughs> do not follow that advice. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the you can read all the Supreme Court judgments in the world, but then if you have an officer standing beside you with, that you know, you know, is armed and has handcuffs on them and they have discretion over how they behave when they're talking to you, you know, most people will end up feeling like they want to comply to be able to just get through that situation safely. Yep. Or, or they just don't want to make trouble. Yeah. Or you think that the officer's engaged in casual chit chat, right? They've stopped. Yeah. Oh, I'm stopping you for speeding. I'm going to write you a speeding ticket. Uh, can I have your license? Oh, mm -hmm. you're in Vancouver. What do you, uh, what brings you over to the island? You know, mm -hmm. and then, um, uh, and, and then you, uh, um, you answer the question and you don't even realize you're stepping into it. You're incriminating yourself. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so I don't need, I don't need to tell the police where I'm going. I mean, what if I, what if I'm on the way to commit some crime, but they, that's, that's none of their business when they're pulling me over for speeding. <laughs> Although I'm sure they would love to know about it. Right. Yeah. And so I don't know that just ah, <laughs> it makes me so mad. And what's also got me frustrated about it tonight is I gave an, a news interview about it. And uh, tonight being Thursday, by the way, listeners, it is Thursday night, as usual, recording the podcast Thursday night. Um, the I gave a news interview today to Global about it. And Global, um, ever since my interview aired, people are emailing me, calling me unethical for telling people about their rights when the police are the one that are in the wrong here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's anything COVID related, I feel like you are going to get a response from people one way or the other that's not not maybe fully thought out um just this very emotional response i find i mean i'm i'm pretty like pro you know pro vaccine pro you know stay safe at home and all of that but i i try to avoid talking about it unless i actually know the person <laughs> I've seen people where it's like, I technically agree with their position on this, but the way that they're talking about it, basically like screaming at everyone else on the internet is like too much. And it's like, okay, let's take a step back here. So I think you're unfortunately being the victim of some people's very strong emotional responses to what we've all been going through. Yeah. 
um, we were talking about the COVID um, and officers and discretion, but I was just about to move us on to the next topic anyway, so. Okay. All right, so speaking of random traffic stops and asking people questions <laughs> in traffic stops, another big case, very interesting case about questioning people came and it's so interesting the timing of this because we're talking about like asking people in 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 cars the reasons why they're traveling and officers not following the health order um and the enforcement rules but now we see this this case about questioning a passenger in a traffic stop yeah and one of the things that came up of course in the health order was the the police are not allowed to question passengers but this case says maybe, I don't know, maybe they are. So this is the case of Robinson. It's a 2021 BCSC 899. And it was a traffic stop. Um, it was in Victoria, I think. Um, and uh, yeah. the, Mr. Robinson was the passenger of a vehicle that was stopped because it had a defective tail light and a defective license plate light <coughs> ruse. Um, and, uh, the officer conducted the traffic stop, um, asked for backup right away, which was weird. And he's like, oh no, it was night and I was alone. Um, and, um, but as we know, defending traffic tickets, usually the officers just issue it alone. So yeah, <laughs> but apparently this officer never likes to be alone and he trains his younger members never to be alone. Um, anyway, he uh, asks the driver for his uh, name and identification um, information, which he provides. He didn't have a driver's license. The passenger's just sitting there, seems relaxed, seems cool, asks him his name. He gives the name James Bud, which like, if you're going to give a fake name, could you maybe not have one that's like <laughs> in it? <laughs> um, <laughs> And it was a known pseudonym of uh, the accused who had two outstanding warrants um, and uh, other issues. So the officer briefs his partner who's now arrived and they arrest the passenger. So that's the background fact. That's convenient that they were already there. Anyway. <laughs> so quickly, how funny, There's within seconds of this very brief detention. <laughs> the um so at trial the issue became whether or not the identification information essentially of the passenger was uh unlawfully obtained and whether the passenger was detained when he was asked about his identification um and i, th I thought this case was just so interesting um because you don't often think about what happens to a passenger when the driver's detained. Right. So Emma, what are your rights as a passenger if you're in a vehicle and the driver gets pulled over? Well, according to what this case seems to be saying, you don't have to answer any questions that the police ask you. Um, mm -hmm. And if you feel like it, you can just exit the car and walk away. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't think that I would do that yeah. um, when the police have pulled over my friend's car or whatever, because that to me looks immediately suspicious, but who am I to say? 
I had a client very recently who um, was telling me about a prior interaction that they had had with an officer where they were the passenger in a car that was pulled over for speeding. And the officer got the driver out of the car and they, as the passenger, also the owner of the car, were like, I don't want to wait and got in the driver's seat and drove the car away. And they got arrested for obstruction. For driving their own car. (laughs) For driving their own car. Well, the person who had committed the alleged offense was still there in the custody of police. Right. But I mean, based on this, it seems like they should have had a right to just do whatever they wanted, including driving away. Yeah. If it's your car, you can drive it away. If if you're entitled Mm -hmm. to walk away, you're entitled to drive away. In fact, there is a case. Uh, Thompson, it's an Ontario Court of Appeal decision where Mr. Thompson was sitting in a uh, sitting in a car that was parked in a parking lot and the police came and boxed him in and the um, uh, and then they started questioning him and he was just sitting there doing nothing um, except being in possession of a bunch of drugs as it was later discovered and the the court said that he was detained the crown's position was well he could have walked away and the court said no 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 if he's free to walk away he's free to drive away they have to be the same thing mm-hmm so, I mean, the idea that you, that you as a passenger can walk away to me is a little bit silly because I don't think any police officer would ever let the passenger walk away. And secondly, what passenger is going to take that risk? Especially when you have like, you know, a, a situation where there's a person of color um, mm-hmm. or a person who's otherwise marginalized vis-a-vis the police, or if you're in a remote area. Like, are you pulled over on the side of the, you know, the, the highway in Terrace and you're just going to at two o'clock in the morning in minus 20 weather in, in February, you're going to walk away? No. Right. So never so- mind, you know, being a, a good person and caring about what happens to your friend who's currently detained, right? Yeah. And maybe your friend is, the you know, driving you to the place you're staying for the night and with absolutely yeah. Have nowhere to go. Like, I th- I feel like this is such a narrow interpretation of whether somebody's detained, and and the court really focused on like whether there was a psychological detention, um, as well, which to me was so odd, um, because they seemed in in the Robinson case to sort of look at the fact that um, the you know there was this presence of mind that the person had that there was only one officer. Um, that uh, there was no no other questioning. Uh, the, the questioning wasn't coercive. It was really just right. a casual in- inquiry. Well, so, Although, so what? Yeah, but I mean, there's also, there was another police vehicle there as well, whether that officer is actually out and talking to them. You can see in the, if there's a police vehicle behind you, you can see it in the rear view mirror. And I can just imagine sitting in a car, seeing one officer coming and talking to the driver and seeing that there's another vehicle right behind, you're gonna maybe start to feel like something's not quite right. And yeah. maybe feel like you are detained and you shouldn't walk away. Like who knows what's gonna happen next, basically. Yeah, and I mean, this incident did happen. It was like 12, 12 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was dark out. Um, if you've ever been sitting in a car in the dark with a police car behind you, uh, no admissions on my part about whether that's a 
Um, you know that with all the flashing lights and everything, you can't see whether there are other officers inside that car. You can't really even see what's what's three feet away outside the window. Right, and we don't know what kind of interactions this guy had had with the police before and what those interactions had gone like either. Well, we know they went well enough that he had two warrants. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I just, to me, I feel like there was like not every factor that would have been in the mind of the person sitting in the accused shoes in that passenger seat was really sort of taken into consideration uh, by the court here. And I think, you know, I, I've got this real sort of intellectual problem, I guess, with judges who are predominantly white definitely privileged making you know bc supreme court judges what three hundred and nineteen thousand dollars a year um and who by virtue of the fact that they are judges are not involved in illegal conduct and haven't been involved in you know mm -hmm. negative interactions with the police over the course of their lives it's i i just to me it's got to be very hard for judges to really put themselves in the shoes of what the accused is going to feel like. Like there's a real disconnect there. Yeah, and I mean, one, one case that was quoted quite a bit in this one and that I think probably would be decided differently if, this, if it came to court in 2021 is the Grant case, um, the Supreme Court of Canada case. That's basically the sort of the leading case on, you know, detention and unlawful search and seizure after yeah. based on based out of a street check, basically, on yeah. a young black man. Yeah. Um, and some of the things that are underlined in this case to justify this the questioning and, and subsequent um, arrest and search and seizure of Mr. Robinson are actually quite uh, interesting. I mean, one of the things they say is, um, while many people may be happy to assist the police, the law is clear that subject to specific provisions that may exceptionally govern the citizen is free to walk away. Given the existence of such a generally understood right in such circumstances, a reasonable person would not conclude that his or her right to choose whether to cooperate with them has been taken away. Which is very interesting in the context of a young black man Mm -hmm. living in an urban area who probably got stopped by the police quite often mm -hmm. or at least you know saw other people like him being stopped by the police and maybe not being treated so well um i mean we've heard a lot in the last year or so about you know black parents give their kids like the talk kind of thing about what to do if you're in a police interaction and it's mainly not necessarily about not getting arrested. It's about not getting physically hurt or killed, right? Yeah. So I don't know if a reasonable person who's grown up in a situation where the police are an active threat to their life in some circumstances is gonna think that the smart choice is to walk away and not comply with what's being asked of them, right? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it, it, Grant was what, 2009? So, might be time. Yeah, not yeah. even that long ago, really. 
but a long time ago at the same time like yeah. like what 12 years ago in 12 years we've come a long way in our understanding our legal systems understanding of of what it's like to not be white mm-hmm. yeah and then the other thing sorry the other thing it says is general inquiries by a patrolling officer present no threat to freedom of choice <laughs> which is again does it? I mean, if some random person comes up and talks to you on the street, maybe you don't feel like you have no choice. But if an officer comes up to you on the street and starts asking you questions, you're probably going to feel like you need to answer the questions. That's when we we need more like Canadians doing that thing that all those U.S. drivers do, which is they they film themselves pulling up to police and going, "Am I mm-hmm. being detained?" Yeah. Says nope. They're like, "Okay, bye." <laughs> Yeah. More like Canada. Am I being just, detained? <laughs> yeah, record your record yourself. Don't don't hold the phone in your hand while you're driving, recording the police though, because I've had more than one person get a ticket specifically for that. Please mount so, your phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a good idea for sure. There is, there is a Siri shortcut. You can tell Siri to to uh create a video of your interaction with police there's a series shortcut yeah. all right emma well you're in for a treat because the last time you appeared on the podcast we did not have my favorite segment which What's is that? the ridiculous driver of the week <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous driver of the week and this week it's even better because we have two ridiculous drivers in one incident i don't know if you saw this on the news um but everybody who's listening go google this you can google two brothers road rage and you will find a glorious video yes two guys in uh maple ridge were brothers got in a fight in a Walmart parking lot and they were so mad at each other that they decided to have like a road rage chase into the street in their cars. And uh, one of them uh, took his uh, took his Dodge, I, can, I don't know if it was the Dodge pickup that hit the Durango or the other way around, but yeah, the one of them <laughs> smashed into the other one. They're two Dodge vehicles. Um, and it it essentially like seriously damaged the Durango. They came speeding around a corner in a downtown intersection by the Maple Market. They jump out of their vehicles and they start beating the shit out of each other. Oh my God. Yeah. There's all sorts of video on it online. So you can definitely, uh, definitely find it. But it was hilarious. Like they had a, a complete like family spat that turned into a massive road rage incident, dangerous driving, and then an assault. Oh my God. I, I actually just pulled up the article too. And this like, I can't watch the video while we're talking, but like, look there, I'm seeing the blue, the blue vehicle, like the van or whatever it is, like with its tires falling off and like the back of the car is like falling apart and smoking and stuff. Yeah, I guess it's like only family members would get that angry and out of control with each other that they would like forget everybody else and just go crazy like that. And, you know, 20 years ago, this type of like family dispute spilling out into the streets thing, they'd probably not be charged because, yeah, in all likelihood, 
the kiss and makeup and not testify against each other. And oh, I don't mm-hmm. remember. I wasn't there. Um, and the crown wouldn't be able to prove it against either of them. But now with everything on video, yeah, we don't need each other's testimony to get convictions. You just need some entertained bystanders, I guess. <laughs> Or maybe well, some terrified bystanders. Uh, I think the bystanders were terrified, probably, but <laughs> I am entertained, and that's all that matters now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. That's our podcast. Um, thank you, Emma, for joining me. Thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun. And uh, if you need to reach us, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.